am super glad to be here with you today. Hey, I, I got to walk up the stairs. <laughs> if you've been here, if you've been here the uh, past few weeks, then you understand uh, what a significant thing that is for me. So, um, I uh, am I, I am so glad I get to be here with you today. I, I do be, I believe I get to be here with you next week as well. Um, today, Cole is in Stuttgart and he is teaching there. Uh, the very same thing I'm going to teach here, he's teaching there, and then um, that's just kind of how we we do. And I am so honored that I get to be one of your pastors. Um, you know, this series has been significant for me because, well, for many reasons, I, I, I love this topic that we've been talking about. And actually, what we're talking about in here today, your children, if you have a child in 252 or First Look, they are also talking about uh, this same topic um, just on a kid's level and in a kid's way. Because I, I know this, I know in my life there are moments I just need, I need more true grit. I need that hold on, don't give up, don't quit, don't let go. I need that. And so do your children as they're growing up, as they are in school, if they're homeschooled or if they are in public school or private school, um, as they are growing up, they need that same characteristic. And I just, I love the fact that with this specific series, we have been teaching the same thing. So we have all possibly had this feeling that I want to talk about, this feeling that sometimes feels like, it sometimes seems like evil is winning, that evil wins, that evil kind of uh, uh, gets, gets ahead. For me, when that happens, I begin to ask questions like this. I'm asking, why can't I get a break? You know, why, why can't it just kind of go my way once? Why can't I get a break? I ask myself, why can't I come out on top? Why do I always feel like um, when things are going on that I end up on the bottom of the pile? Why is that? I find myself, when that happens frequently in a row, I find myself getting frustrated. And not only frustrated, it, it kind of then moves from frustration to anger. And then from anger, it moves to this feeling of abandonment. Like, okay, why is evil winning? I feel like maybe God has abandoned me. So from abandonment, it's a very short step for me to get to disillusionment, disillusionment. And I ask questions like this at that point. I say, what's the point? You know, has God lost control of what's happening? What's the point? Has he maybe just lost interest in being involved in my life? Maybe he's just lost interest. And then it's with disillusionment, we get other questions. Sometimes we ask questions like this. Is this just all a big joke? Is God just watching me uh, struggle, watching me suffer, watching me just try and fail? And then it ends up asking this final question, something like, why do I keep trying? Why do I keep trying to make this happen? You see, for many of us, the problem where we lose faith in life, the problem is not the pain that we experience. Sometimes it is. But more often, it's not the pain that causes us to lose faith. It's something else. We begin to lose faith because there's an absence of, of meaning. Why am I having to go through this? Why am I struggling through this? And we just don't understand the why. We want to know why. We want to know that there's purpose behind the pain, that there's a reason behind the struggle. But when we don't know why, we struggle with that. And here's what happens. We have this feeling, yes, God created everything. I know this. I know that God is a powerful creator. And so I know that God could fix whatever problem I'm going through. So why didn't he just fix it? Why didn't he just make it better? Why didn't he just make it go away? And about that time, especially with disillusionment, about that time, then something happens. The evil one seems to slip in right beside me, and then he whispers in my ear. You know what, Harley? He says, it's because he's not there. That's why. In fact, hardly you are 
alone. It's a tale as old as time. It's been going on a long time. And here's what happens when we get disillusioned. We kind of go through some stages, and many of us go through stages like this. Here's the first thing that happens. The first thing is we kind of drop out of attending church. We just kind of go by the wayside because we get disillusioned. I mean, what's the point of getting up early? I could sleep in. I mean, (laughs) I'm not getting a whole lot out of that. I might as well sleep in. We begin to kind of just fall by the wayside. Sunday morning is just another thing uh, among a countless number of things that we need to do. But after we begin to kind of fade away on Sunday mornings, then we also eventually, with disillusionment, we, we begin to quit reading Scripture. That happens. I mean, after all, we've read a lot, right? We've read a lot of scripture in our lifetime, and we began to think, it hasn't done me much good. And so we stop reading scripture. And then finally, we quit praying. I mean, it's that feeling of there's no one really listening to me. My prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. It, it might be a feeling of, well, uh, I, if he did hear me, he's choosing to just say no and watch me live through life struggling the way I'm struggling. And this disillusionment can happen every single day. It happens in our families. In fact, right now for you, you might be thinking of someone in your own family that is disillusioned with God and with church and with things of a spiritual nature. You might be thinking of that person right now. Or it might be that you might be in a a phase right now where you are struggling with disillusionment yourself. You might be on the edge yourself. Well, The result is this. With disillusionment, it kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because the more disillusioned we get, the further we feel like and maybe steps that we're taking away from God. And it just kind of begins to fulfill itself and begins to cycle. Because there's a real poignant description that Jesus gives us. We're not going to go there today, but in John 15, he talks about being connected to the vine. And if we're disillusioned, we begin to separate ourselves from the vine. And we know that anything, if, it's, if, if something needs to be connected to the vine to live, if we separate it from the vine, it's going to struggle for survival. It's going to wither up and it's going to die. Which then that opens the door yet again to the evil one to come in through our pain and among our pain and begin to shout at us in our ear beside us saying, see, I told you so, God's not there. Or he says, God is not interested in you. Or he says, God doesn't care. And he might even say that God is angry at you. God hates you. And all of the the while, it leaves us with this enormous question still. And the question is this. We say, why? Why? Why, God? Why? Why am I having to go through this? Why is life ending up this way? Now, we're wrapping up this series today, um, taking a look at this whole thing called true grit. And we're saying, with true grit, we have this something about us where we're able to hold on. Now, if you've missed any of this series, we encourage you to go back and pick it up and look at it. In fact, if you check out the Stuttgart Harvest Church Facebook page, you can uh, get the live version there. Uh, I know I am behind on uploading to SoundCloud this uh, this series, but so that would be the best place to get it. But I want you to know this, even if today is your first day as part of this series, you're not going to be left behind. Um, Everything we talk about today, you're going to be right here with us. You're going to be able to, to follow right along. So we're wrapping up this series today, and this is our last perspective of uh, this year and with this series, where we're going to be really breaking down this topic of pain and suffering that we experience, and pain and suffering that we see other people experience um, in this world, that we see people we love that are going through. And we're going to the last Sunday, we're going to be talking about the confusion 
that we face regarding that pain and suffering. We're going to be talking about the disappointment and the discouragement it causes, but today is going to be the last day we do this. And this big question is going to be the thing that we just hang on to today, because in all of that pain and suffering, our big question is this, it is why, God, why? We suffer when we don't understand the reason why we're in pain, why we're suffering, why someone we love is suffering. So today, why God, why? Here's the big question for all of us. It's the question that really, as we look at God, we say, God, I demand that you answer this question. And in fact, it's almost as if we're saying, God, I require you to present yourself to me right now and answer this question. And if you don't answer this question for me, then God, I'm going to walk away. I'm going to drop the rope. I'm going to let go. I'm not going to hang on any longer. Now we're going to be looking at something that Luke wrote. And uh, Luke wrote what some people call the fifth gospel um, it's the book of Acts. And what it really is, it's, it, it's a history that Luke wrote. And he recorded how the things that happened after Jesus left the earth and right about the time he was leaving the earth to so go back to, uh, to heaven with the Father. So Luke writes about this. And we're going to be uh, looking at something that he wrote. And um, it's in chapter 12 out of this history. And this is our springboard. Here, here we are, Acts chapter 12, and we're going to look at verse 1. It says, about that time, King Herod Agrippa began to persecute some believers in the church. Now, let's pause right there. So, the church is just now getting started. So Jesus has gone to be with the Father in heaven. He left and he gave the church a launch, a starting place. He said, by the way, I'm leaving, but what I want you to do is go through all the world and make disciples. This is what he's telling. This is the job of you, the church. This is what you're going to be doing. And then he, and then he leaves. And here we see on the scene, we see almost almost immediately, the church begins to be persecuted. Now, it's very possible that some of them had that very same question. We're saying, okay, God, this is what you want us to do, but why are you allowing this to happen? Why, God, why? And, and as I look at that, 2,000 years later, I'm looking at that, and I'm saying the same thing. Why, God, why, why would you allow that to happen when this is your plan? This is what you need to happen. You ask us to do, you want to do, and you're kind of controlling things, so why? God, why? And here's the next verse. It doesn't get any better. He says, this king, Herod Agrippa, verse 2, he had the apostle James, which is John's brother, killed with a sword. And again, now we're saying, okay, God, why? If James were such a vital part, and he was, of what you were doing in the world, why are you going to allow him to be struck down? When God, you are all powerful, you could stop this. Why, God, why? James was one of your first four followers. He was with you through a lot. He followed you for three years, and now he is part of this whole thing of getting the church started throughout the world with your message, Jesus. Why, God, why? Why would you let? this happen when you have the power to stop it. Verse 3, when Herod saw how much this pleased the Jewish people, he also arrested Peter. Okay, God, now here we go. So John, James is now dead, murdered, executed, and now they have Peter too? So God, the question's getting worse. Why, God, why? Where are you in all of this? I don't see any purpose here. Luke tells us that this took place during the Passover celebration. And then in verse 4, he says, Then he, that's the king, imprisoned him, that's Peter, placing him under guard of four squads and four soldiers each. So he didn't want Peter getting away. Herod intended to bring Peter out for public trial after the Passover. Verse 5, but while Peter was in prison, the church prayed very earnestly for him. I don't know what was going through the mind of the church. 
Maybe some of them were saying, why, God, why? They were very aware that James had died. And, and, and I would go so far as to say that very same church had been praying for James too. You know they were. They were praying for James, yet God didn't answer. So they might be thinking, some of them could be thinking, I know I would be thinking, what's the use in praying? Why? God, why? You didn't with James. Why should we now pray for Peter? But they were. They were praying for Peter. And while we're on the topic, God, I could give you a list of things I've prayed for that you didn't answer. So God, why? Why should I pray now? Why should I pray for Peter? Why should I pray for, why should I pray for anything for me? Why, God, why? You didn't answer that. You could have. So now we're told that uh, by Luke, he goes on and describes how Passover is, is over. So now the plan is to bring the next day to bring Peter on trial. He saw how much it pleased the Jews who were not following Jesus. It pleased them so much to see James executed. Uh, they're going to love it with Peter because Peter was more of a public guy here. Oh, man. So they're going to be bringing him up next, the very next day. So right now, though, Peter's in chains. He's between two soldiers, and there's two more soldiers at the gate. They are not letting this one get away. And Luke tells us, I'm just going to kind of describe to you what he writes. We're not going to have this on the screen. Luke goes on and he describes that suddenly within the prison, there was this bright light and it was, and it was just in this cell where Peter was. And an angel of the Lord, he stood before Peter and the angel struck him on the side to waken him. What a fright, what a startle. He, he strikes him on the side. He wakes him up and he, the angel says to Peter, quick, listen, you got to get up. And immediately, we just sang about this, uh, immediately the chains fell off of Peter's wrists. And the angel told him, he said, listen, Peter, now get up and get dressed and wear your sandals. We're always looking for your sandals, Peter. Put on your sandals. We're getting ready to leave. And that's what Peter did. And Peter put on his coat. The angel told him to. The angel told him step by step what to do. Okay, now, Peter, now your coat. <laughs> Puts on his coat, and he says, now follow me. That's what the angel ordered. And so Peter left the cell following this angel. But here's, here's something strange. All this whole time, Peter thinks he's in a dream. He thinks he's dreaming. What a nice dream. What a great dream that I am being freed. An angel's getting me out of here. This is a great dream. I don't want to wake up. Luke describes this because he talked to Peter about this, and Luke writes down what happened. He said, Peter did not know he was awake. He thought he was in a dream. He could not realize this was actually happening. Luke goes on to describe. They passed the first and second guard post, and they came to the iron gate that's leading to the city. And the gate, the gate, Peter told this to Luke, the gate opened all by itself. So God is kind of, I mean, the chains fell off by themselves, the angels there. God is kind of showing off here. It's kind of cool. They passed through, and they started walking down the street. And then, as they're walking down the street, the angel suddenly leaves. And Peter, at this moment, he comes to his senses and realizes, and Luke quotes him, Peter says, this is really true. <laughs> I mean, this, this is actually happening. The Lord sent an angel to save me. This is really going down. I am not today going to be killed, executed by Herod. That was their plan, and it's not going to happen. And it says when he realized this, then he then goes to the home of Mary. I wish I could talk about this. Mary, it's the mother of John Mark. I wish I could talk about that. I don't have time. It's kind of cool. And it's there where the church was gathered in her home, and that's where they were praying for Peter's release. And in fact, at that moment, they were still praying. Peter goes up and he knocks on the door or the gate, and he's kind of calling out. A servant girl slips out of the prayer time and she comes towards the gate and she hears 
Peter's voice. She recognizes this is Peter. She's so excited. She doesn't open the door, doesn't open the gate. She runs back into where the prayer circle is, and she's like, Peter's out there. He's here. And they're like, you're out of your mind. I guess they, perhaps, they knew what had happened to James. They knew they needed to pray for him. I'm sure they did. And now they're praying for Peter, maybe with not a lot of hope. That they think he's getting ready to die, but we know we need to pray. I'm not sure what was going through their mind, but it's very possible. That could be what they're thinking. And so they tell the girl, I said, it's probably not Peter. Maybe it's his angel. So now they're, they're, they are, uh, they're not in a position to really create theology here. They're just trying to figure out what's going on. And it says all the while, Peter is still at the gate knocking and hollering somewhat quietly for them. And finally, finally, they come to their senses. They go open the gate. There is Peter. They are now exuberant. They're now celebrating. And Peter actually motions for them to be quiet. Hold it down. I don't feel safe yet, but God did let him out. And here's what is said. Tell James, this is another James, and the other brothers what happened, he said. And it says, then he went to another place. At dawn, there was this great commotion among the soldiers. So the soldiers were somehow asleep through all of this. I'm sure God made that happen. They see that Peter is gone. Now, this is a big deal. Because if a Roman soldier loses the person they are detaining, one of two things will happen. Either that Roman soldier will have to serve that that uh, man's sentence themselves, or they will be killed. And in this case, the sentence was execution. That is what Herod did. He had them killed. Now, if you're like me, you may be sitting there wondering and thinking, and I can't help but to wonder what the people in the church were thinking themselves. God allows James to be executed. He allows James to be killed. He allows James to be taken out completely in a horrible way. He allows James to be executed. And here we have now Peter, who was in the very same situation, but now Peter is rescued. And if you're wondering about how that makes any sense, like me, then just maybe it's because you're human. <laughs> I think we would all wonder, God, if you could for James, why didn't you? And if you didn't for James, why not? And if you did for Peter, why Peter and not James? Why God? Why? That's the overriding question. If you could have done that for James, why not? Because God, really, simply, God, to me, this just seems so unfair. Why would you not for Peter, James, the way you did for Peter? So maybe perhaps as I was thinking through this, I thought, you know, I usually don't give a, a, a teaching a title, but I thought, man, we could title this today, Living with Why God Why. And then the second part of that title would be this, because this is what we're getting ready to do. So it would be Living with Why God Why, and then it would have, it, it would say this, a theology of true grit. And when I say a theology of true grit, what I'm saying is that we're going to look at what does God say? What does he teach us? What is a belief that we can hold on to about true grit? 
and how that relates to pain and suffering and why we have to suffer at all in this world. Why? God, why? A theology of true grit. I know that sounds boring, so just kind of stick with the why, God, why. I want to begin with this. As we began to answer this question, God tells us to accept that right now we only have a partial view. If we're going to look at true grit and why God allows us to suffer, we're going to have to start here because we're going to have to just accept that right now in our lives as humans, our perspective, we only have a partial view. I want to give you a uh, representation of that as best I can. And so Bryce has a picture that he's going to share with us because I don't think you're going to be able to see this. Um, if, if you look at this um, and what you can see on the screens, you really can't tell what's there. It's a, it's a, a, a cross stitch, okay? Um, and this is our view. So what's on the screen is uh, this little section right, right here, okay? And as you look at that, all you can really see is just a bunch of thread and, 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 and a bunch of kind of loops and kind of, uh, let's just be honest, it's kind of chaos as you look at that. As you look at that, you can't tell anything. And, and here's what we're trying to explain. As a human, this is our view. As we look at life and as we look at pain and as we look at tough things, we have one view. That's all we have. It's all we can because of our limit. We are limited. We are finite, whereas God is infinite. And so we are limited in our physical and spiritual ability to see. And it looks like a mess. And we would be left with the question in our lives, as we look at the chaos, as we look at the mess, as we look at that pain and suffering, we would be left with the question, God, why? This makes no sense. And we said as we began, if we can't make sense of pain and suffering, we struggle because it seems so useless. Why, God, why? God is infinite. He is not bound by our physical limitations. He's not bound by the physical laws. Um, you teach history, you teach history, and God is not bound. God at this very moment is present. I, I can't explain this other than just to use words to say it. He is present in every bit of our past. He's there. What you don't teach as a history teacher, although actually you kind of do, you also teach about the future. <laughs> because if we, we learn from our past, if not, we're going to repeat it over and over in the future. But I want you to know this. God, at this very moment, the same moment he is in the past, Everything I have ever done, everything I've ever said or ever thought, God is there at this moment. I can't be. I can only be in now. God is in that past. But God is at the very same time in the future. The decisions I have yet to make, the things I have yet to think and yet to say and yet to do, he's already there. And in that future, I've already done them. This blows my mind. I am limited to this perspective right now. This is chaos, and this is a mess, and I don't understand. But God's perspective, not limited by the finite, not limited by our physical laws, not limited at all, because God made those laws. He's not limited. So God's view is different. So as best I can with this picture, it's not finished yet, but um, this makes more sense on this side. Now, sadly, this angel does not yet have a head. <laughs> but one day, my sweet wife is going to finish this, and this angel will no longer be headless. But you can see the wings. And that very spot where we were focused on, you see on the screens, you can see. That's a little patch of, like, flowers this, or something like that, right? But it makes more sense there, doesn't it? 
You can see it better. And God's view is not limited like our view. God has the complete view. We don't have this. I didn't mean to spend 10 minutes on this, but I just need you to understand. When God asks us to accept that right now we have a partial view, that means that God has a complete view. The view that makes no sense to us right now makes perfect sense to God. He has a different view. Paul describes God's perspective. I just need to pause. I can't believe I'm getting to walk around this stage. Okay, so um, (laughs) Paul gives us a perspective. Um, He writes a letter to the Christ followers in Corinth. Listen to what Paul says. He, he, He basically says exactly what we just taught. He says, now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. So it's as if it's not a very good mirror that we're looking at, or it's as if the mirror is cracked and broken and we can't quite see. It's making it almost impossible to put a picture together. You see, that's what he's saying. He's saying, that's what it's like for us right now. We're on the backside of that cross stitch. It's chaos. It's a mess. That's all we can see. And he's getting ready to describe how later at another time, Not today, another time that we're going to see things more clearly. Here's what he says. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely. Paul and the other apostles, those were people who were directly following Jesus that he called. Paul and the other apostles somehow believed that although at this moment they did not have the total picture, they believed that God did have the total picture. And that, that was enough for them. That was enough for them. You see, Paul had experienced God's plan. He had experienced it. He had seen in glimpses where that plan looked like chaos, but then he saw in some parts, he was fortunate enough to get to see how that plan played out later. On the other side of trouble, on the other side of disappointment, on the other side of discouragement, on the other side of pain. And that allowed Paul to have faith and what we're calling today true grit to hold on to that faith and not let it go and not give up and not walk away from God. It allowed him to do that. He understood, even if I don't get the bigger picture later, this side of heaven, he understood that God had a different perspective. God could see things clearly that he could not. So with this thing called faith, we we need to pause here and talk about this for a moment. So what can we expect if we hold on to faith? What can we expect from faith? Now, I'm going to use a phrase here that Cole and I use often, and and I hope every time we use it, we explain it or remember to explain it. And it's this, are we holding on to a faith that is the American gospel? the American gospel. There's many ways to explain the American gospel. I'm going to use this one today. I'll use another way um, soon, but this is the way I'm going to explain it today. The American version of God's gospel says this, that if I want something to happen, all I have to do is have enough faith and it will happen. In other words, I can name it. And what's the other phrase then? Claim it, right? We've heard that. I can name it and claim it. I was telling Bryce this morning, uh, I was looking at one of my friend's Facebook posts, and um, and he was doing some naming and claiming. I mean, he was naming and claiming some really expensive shoes. I mean, like a couple thousand dollars. 
And he literally was naming it and claiming it. And my friends, that's nothing more than the American gospel. And by the way, I just need you to know, according to God, there's no such thing as the American gospel. There is to Americans, but not to God. Name it, claim it. It says, if I have enough faith that everything is going to be okay. I would love if that were the case. But the reality to that is a big fat no. Faith does no matter how hard we hold on. And this is what this whole thing has been about. The true grit to hold on when things get tough. Faith does not offer us a carefree life. Rather, we need to know this, especially in America. Faith almost guarantees some kind of abuse. Let's think about Hebrews chapter 11. It's a very famous part of uh, scripture where the writer describes what faith is. And then he goes through this list. It's almost like walking through the hall of fame of God followers. And we see this list. And the writer has just finished uh, kind of recounting all of these amazing, amazing things that God uh, allowed to happen through faith, by the way, very specifically. Do not get me wrong. These things happened through faith. And God did this through these people. This is huge. He goes through a list of names like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Rahab. And he's telling us what has happened in the lives of these people because of faith. And he tells us, which, by the way, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Okay, so faith is important. And faith produced some really amazing things that God did when these people had faith. Here we go. Chapter 11, verse 32. The writer of Hebrews says, how much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of faith of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and all the prophets. He's saying, in other words, there's so much, I don't have room to write it all. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms. They ruled with justice and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, verse 34, quenched the flames of fire and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned into strength. They became strong in battle and they put whole armies to flight all through faith. And if you're like me, we love these stories. I love these stories. Of course we do. Because all of those stories, those have happy endings. I love that. That's why Disney is so popular. Happy endings. But here's the thing. If all we read were the first 34 verses of Hebrews chapter 11, then we could make a case for the American gospel. We could say, see, there it is. Whoop, there it is. <laughs> Thank you for my friends from the 80s. If that's all we read, we could say, you know, there seems to be some truth here. That if we have enough faith, we too will get a happily ever afting, after a happily ever after ending with health and wealth and all the benefits. If I have enough faith, if I believe hard enough, we will find ourselves on the side of truth and the side of justice and the American way. You know, God's side. Everything's going to work out if I have enough faith. But my friends, we cannot stop at verse 34. We've got to keep reading. It goes on. It says, 
women receive their loved ones back again from death. Okay, well, this is sounding pretty good, God. I'm on this team. He goes on, but others were tortured. Oh, wait, torture? Um, did I hear you right, God? Torture? Yeah, because they refused to turn from God in order to be set free. Oh, they could have been set free, but they refused, so they were tortured. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. But God, I want a better life now. Mm. No, sometimes it's after. He goes on, verse 36. Some were jeered at. Mm, not cool, but I'll take a jeering over torture. Backs were cut open with whips. Not fun. Others were chained in prisons. God, can we get back to um, shutting the mouths of lions? Some died in verse 37. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half. God, this isn't getting better. And others were killed with the sword. God, I'm trying to make sense of this. These people had enough faith. As much faith as the others. Yes? Yes. But they were sawed in half. My friends, faith doesn't promise a happy ending. And you need to know this. Prosperity preachers don't tell you that. I have an idea why. Because that doesn't get the $1,000 vows of faith, right? <laughs> Just send it in. I think they may have even just cut this out of their Bibles. Because these people with these horrid endings are in the hall of fame of faith. Many times, genuine faith results in trouble and in pain and in suffering. And our human perspective, if you're anything like me, our human perspective says, why, God, why? And so this morning, honestly, I wish I had a better answer for us. I wish I had something that would get us on our feet and make us cheer. I wish I had something more that would satisfy us. I wish I had the answer that would alleviate all the tension related to pain and suffering. But I don't. Often, the answer is simply that there are many things that just will not be buttoned up this side of heaven. And we have to take those things with true grit. And we have to file those things under the file folder labeled things I just don't understand yet. Which is all part of us accepting that right now we have this view. And we trust and know that God has this view. True grit. In fact, I think it, it demands a true grit type of faith, demands that we even welcome these confusing circumstances. We welcome them into our lives as friends. True grit. Hold fast to your faith. Because without it, it is impossible to please God. And after all, we're told in that very same chapter, we're told that faith is the evidence of things not seen. Because we only have a partial view. Things not seen. But while we have a partial view, 
God tells us throughout Scripture, and we must be reminded while we have that view, He, God, is in control. He hasn't lost control. He hasn't given up control. There are countless Scripture that tells us that, yes, God answers prayer. But we also know, this is the hard part. I understand this is the tension. This is the hard part. This is what makes us ask God why. We also know that God does not answer everything the way we want it to happen. We know that sometimes God says no. And sometimes God says, wait. Or possibly, this is what's so hard, I understand. Sometimes he says nothing at all. And we're left asking, why God, why? But we also learn this in the new covenant, that our faith is not anchored to signs and wonders. Our faith is not anchored to miracles. We are not sending our request up to the sovereign Lord of the universe and saying, hey, God, uh, listen, I could use some miracles at the moment right now, in case you haven't noticed. We know that God is powerful. We know, of course, that Scripture tells us that, yes, He can. He can overcome our problem. He's the creator of the world. He can overcome it with a whisper. He can overcome it with a thought. But so often, so often we find that He allows us to struggle with our weakness in order to reveal His power. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. We now have this light shining in our hearts. And I want you to know if you're a follower of Jesus today, you have that light. You have it. It's there. We now have this light shining in our hearts, but, if, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. You see, this amazing treasure, by God's plan, has been stuffed into and stuck down inside of a broken, dilapidated vessel. Me. And you. And God is using this cracked vessel, me and you. Here's what he says. Paul says, this makes it clear that our great power is from God, not ourselves. Now, let's clarify something very quickly. This great power, sometimes it is something great you do that you couldn't do maybe. Maybe. But this great power is also when you choose to hold on with true grit and not let go, and everyone around you says, this is crazy, you should let go. But you know God said, hold on, so you hold on. Sometimes it's the power to hold on. It seems to me that in this verse, Paul makes it very clear that if you are a Christ follower, you are going to have at least one huge crack in your clay pot. At least one weakness. At least one thing that keeps you fragile. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing that God is in control. And it's a good thing that God tells us this. Here's the next thing he tells us about our theology of true grit. His grace is enough. 
Even Paul, the amazing Christ follower that he was, Paul was a clay pot. Paul had a weakness. He says in verse 7, even though I've received such wonderful revelations from God, and by the way, those revelations are lasting today. In fact, we're talking about one right now. I mean, Paul was amazing. Paul had done so many things. We continue to talk about what Paul had done, what God did through Paul 2,000 years later. We're still talking about it. He said, so to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and to keep me from becoming proud. He's saying, my pot, ooh, it is way, way, way cracked. Three different times he said, I begged the Lord to take it away. And each time he said this, mm, nope, my grace is all you need. My power actually works best in weakness. And Paul says, so now I'm glad to boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ can, be, can work through me. And everyone, listen, this, I don't want to teach this phrase. Everyone, you and me and Paul, at times are asked to endure some things that hurt. And whatever yours is this moment or the person you love, I, I understand there's tension in that statement. But whatever yours is, perhaps God is saying, accept it and carry it. Because God will give you the grace to endure it. Here's what we also learn about a theology of true grit. Look at the adversity principle. No one gets a pass. Adversity is coming if it's not already in your life. It's just a part of life. But know that God's grace is enough. James, not the one who was uh, killed by the sword that we just read about. Another James, this is the brother of Jesus. James, the brother of Jesus, said this. He talks about the adversity principle. He says, dear brothers and sisters, when trouble of any kind comes your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. James tells us about the adversity principle. Paul tells us many times about the adversity principle. Here's one. He says, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And the endurance develops strength of character, and the character uh, strengthens our confident hope of salvation. Nowhere did James or Paul in that adversity principle they're talking about say that it promises a happy ending for that adversity. But you know what? Jesus also taught about the adversity principle. You just, I encourage you to go into the new covenant and find where Jesus does that. He teaches it too. And with those words, we're basically ending this series. And it's coming all the way back now to a full circle right where we started. Sometimes he rescues us. Sometimes he doesn't but he always has our lives in perfect control. Because those times he doesn't remove the problem or he doesn't remove us from the problem, he allows the problem to make us stronger, to make us more stable, building endurance, building that grit, never giving up, continuing to work, continuing to fight, doing the best you can with what you have where you are. And Paul said that this endurance, this grit, develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. It increases our faith. And we come full circle. But as we close this series, don't miss this because God tells us this too. With our theology of true grit, there can be peace in the storm. 
You see, it's not my responsibility or your responsibility to try to figure out why this is happening in my life so that I can explain it to others and make it make sense to others. Because God simply has not given me enough information to be able to do that, and that's okay. Instead, he has asked us to not let go and to allow God to be God. Just don't let go. To allow God to be in control, whatever that looks like, let him be God. And therein lies the secret of our ability to have peace in the storm. A peace that is described as one that transcends all, all understanding. And it is the the ability for us to say, I'm going to let God be God. Do you remember we talked a few weeks ago about Paul's resume? And by that, we're saying how Paul had this list of bad things happening. Bad, 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 bad. I was stoned. Bad, just bad things. Bad things that happened to him. And yet, consider Paul's response to all that mess that was in his life. Listen to this, Philippians chapter 4. Always, this is Paul speaking, who had all those bad things on his resume that happened to him. Always be full of joy in the Lord. He said, I say it again, rejoice. This is in spite of, even though knowing I have all of these bad things, these things that hurt, the stoning hurt. He says, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. Let everyone see that you are uh, that you uh, that you are considerate in all you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. He's saying, change this focus. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. No matter what the answer might be, pray about everything. He says, tell God what you need and thank Him for all He has done. Then you will experience God's peace. And he's saying, no matter the outcome, you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Paul can rejoice because ultimately, Paul is saying, I'm going to let God be God. I'm going to let him be God. I'm going to trust God no matter what the circumstance, no matter what happens, no matter what's going on. No matter what's happening in this life that is imperfect, I'm going to understand and expect that things that are imperfect are going to happen to me in this life. But a better day is coming. We can have contentment in this person of Jesus. And so this all comes down to this. Here we are today for the closing. So maybe we're right. Maybe this last teaching should be called living with why God why a theology of true grit. We just taught part of that theology of true grit, why we can hang on, why we should hang on, even when we don't understand what's going on. So very quickly, I just want to run through today's theology of true grit. We first said we need to accept that right now we only have a partial view. And we said we need to understand that God is in control. We need to understand that his grace is enough. We need to look at the adversity principle and remember, nobody gets a pass. And then we need to finally remember, there can be peace in the storm. Today's next step is not much of a step at all. Today's next step, we're just simply saying, through review of this, Will you allow God to help you change your thinking? Because God loves you. No matter what you're going through, God loves you. And you can trust God to be God. In fact, God can be trusted even when he cannot be tracked. You know, it's, It is not wrong. We are not prohibited from trying to understand. You need to know this. We are not prohibited from trying to understand and make sense of why. 
But we are told in that process, we cannot lean on our own understanding. And here's how the wisdom writer says it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not, do not depend on your own understanding. In other words, God is in control. His grace is enough. And there can be peace in the storm. Even when we ask, why God, why? So we might have this final question, but God, what can I do? And, and the wisdom writer tells us the very next verse. He says, seek his will, God's will, and all you do. And he'll show you the path to take. He may not show you the why. He'll show you the path, the next step. Even when you don't understand the why. Let's pray. God, we simply want to do the best we can to trust in you with all of our hearts. To not depend upon our own reasoning and our own ability to put things together. God, we want to find a way to let you be God and let you be in control, even when we don't understand. And God, I know this, your word tells us that when we can trust you, even when we don't understand that it is you and you alone that can give us a peace that transcends all understanding. So God, in this moment, whatever my friends, whatever their family may be going through, May we say this morning, God, we're going to let you be God. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things.